0: Thanks for joining me today. This is Redemptive Revolution, restoring hope to the formerly incarcerated. I'm Nick Arnold. Did you know that an estimated 98% of the accused never see their day in court? Our prison population is composed mostly of those who decided to take a plea deal instead of take their case to court. To help us understand the plea deal and its implications, I've invited retired Judge Nancy Gertner on the show. Judge Gertner was appointed to the federal bench by President Clinton and retired in 2011 to become a faculty member at Harvard Law School. She is also an accomplished author. Judge Gertner, thanks for being on the show. It's good to be here. So can you first help me understand what is a plea deal and why someone would choose that path?
1: Well, a plea deal is a, a situation in which you plead guilty in exchange for usually Uh, a lesser sentence, and that means either fewer uh, charges, the government chart may drop charges that carry higher penalties, or uh, a lower charge even for the penalties that you have. So it's supposed to be a bargain to get less time.
0: And uh, why is this used by a prosecutor? Um, Why are they trying to get somebody to to get a plea deal?
1: Well, uh, sometimes uh, there are usually two purposes. One is it makes, uh, you know, the system more efficient. It may not make it more fair, but it certainly makes it more efficient. You can move on to the next case. Uh, then it eliminates the risks of trial, certainly for the prosecutor and for the defense, where the trial could have an outcome that you don't anticipate, where the trial could wind up uh, you know, with an acquittal. So this is a way in which they secure... An, an outcome. And then plea deals are also important to the government for uh, individuals who are cooperating with the government, where part of the exchange is you testify against someone higher than you are, and in exchange you get a less sentence.
0: Gotcha. So it's used for a large variety of deals. What What do you think, is there any kind of type of case that's used mostly for plea deals, or are all types of cases kind of used as tactic?
1: You know, um, uh, in these days, Uh, it's used in all kinds of cases. Um, It's used in... the. the, There's an interesting story that tea bargains initially began uh, actually around the time of prohibition when Mm. all of a sudden there were numbers of... there were so many people being prosecuted that it was a way of uh, of enhancing the efficiency of the system. After a while it got to be less to enhance the efficiency of the system, because it happens in busy courts and not-so-busy courts, and really more to as a tool of the prosecutor to, to assure themselves that they get the particular outcome they want.
0: And why is that important to to ensure that they get the particular outcome? What what's the risks of of somebody actually going to trial and, and getting their day in court?
1: Well, the, the prosecutor is the risk of loss. Uh, that that uh, there are two risks actually of going to trial for the prosecutor. One is the risk that they could lose. They expend a lot of resources and they lose and the other is the risk I suppose in a case involving a cooperator, it's the risk that the cooperator's cooperation is surfaced, is then shown to everybody. Mm. So the prosecutor then can, uh, this is a way of avoiding both of those things, and it's a deal. And, and the the other issue here is that uh, with mandatory minimums and high, very, very substantial sentences, it's now the case that uh, the prosecutor really just. Uh, uh, doesn't have to go to trial ever. Has bargaining tools that are so substantial uh, because the risks of trials produce such substantial sentences that um, you know it, it it becomes not just a tool to be used sometimes; it becomes tools used all the time.
0: So, with the mandatory minimums, what what kind of time are people looking at for some of these crimes, and what kind of time are they pleading to 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 not have the risk of of getting that time?
1: It's all over the map. Um, the people can plead to um, mandatory minimums of two years in some of the for some lesser crimes, all the way up to ten or twenty. Um, I mean, I've seen people plead to mandatory minimums to avoid an even higher sentence. Mm. So the risks are. It really depends on the crime. But for example, driving uh, driving under the influence is typically a mandatory minimum that could be one or two years.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so the range is all over the map.
0: Now. We've kind of talked about how people are use this to to get lesser sentences for crimes that they did commit. Is this ever uh, the case where people are pleading to crimes that they actually didn't commit to to not risk the going to trial and, and losing bigger?
1: Well, that you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I, that can happen. Um, that surely can happen. We now know the the false confessions, for example, in general happen. More than we ever anticipated. So it can happen that someone pleads guilty to something um, that they didn't do. Uh, in addition, and perhaps even more likely, they will plead guilty to the. They may have done something, mm. but they will plead guilty to a different crime. Uh, in other words, you may have dealt drugs on one occasion. You wind up pleading to something more substantial. Um, um, you know, you. It, it's it's not just did you do the act but did you do the act as defined by the law? Mm. And so some people can plead guilty even if they didn't do what the law precisely defined, but just to get it over with. But given the numbers of people who plead guilty, given the, the uh, you know, how ubiquitous it is in the system, um, it's not unreasonable to believe that there are fair numbers of people who are pleading guilty who actually didn't do the crime at all.
0: Because I can imagine being accused of something and having all this evidence, um, maybe that you uh, might be true or might not be true, starting to pile up against you, and you can imagine the fear uh, that that would bring for somebody, and, and that they might go along with a plea deal, even if uh, that wasn't exactly how it how it happened or exactly what they right. did.
1: I mean, it, it is—it's a—it's a really um, uh, extraordinary um, situation with uh, with plea bargaining now because it's become the default. It's no longer an unusual, you know, situation. It's become the default. This is what people do uh, typically in order to avoid a more onerous penalty. And since the legislatures have provided more onerous penalties, it's something that t- people typically do. All the time. Um, sometimes you, I, I had people who got a sense pleading guilty not only because of what they had done, but also to avoid prosecution of another. Mm. Or pleading guilty, uh, you know, it, in order not to tax the resources of their families. Um, the, the government has such substantial um, uh, power in this situation that, first of all, the notion of calling it a bargain is a misnomer. Mm. In other words, there's been a bargaining going on in many of these situations you know the defense has really nothing much to bargain for um so the, the government has the power to get people to plead guilty under all sorts of circumstances
0: it's interesting you mentioned the financial costs and uh is that that's something that plays into this uh, going to court and trying to defend yourself is a very expensive thing and some of these uh, families who just can't afford that um, you can see how uh, they wouldn't want to devastate their family by uh, trying to plead their case
1: right right I mean that it, there's all sorts of reasons you know it could be to avoid publicity it could be to avoid cost it could be to avoid sometimes it may be avoiding disclosure you know that you don't want to disclose who your associates were or because you're scared or whatever and so you don't want to plead you don't want to go to Uh, you don't want to go to trial under those circumstances because that could come out. So there are a whole bunch of reasons, but the principal reason why people plead guilty is that when trials have a penalty, and the trial penalty here is a mandatory minimum or an extraordinary mandatory guideline sentence, which doesn't happen very often, the the guidelines are no longer really mandatory, uh, but certainly mandatory minimum, when that's hanging in the balance um, that that pushes people to plead guilty.
0: So we know that uh, in prisons and jails, the minority populations are um, more represented um, serving times. Does the plea deal have an effect on those populations be, becoming greater and in, in incarcerated? Well,
1: I, I don't think it's the plea deal so much as the charging practices of mm. police. And prosecutors. Um, In other words, the the same universe of people are coming into your courts, but that's not because of their plea bargaining problems. It's because of the people we choose to charge and the people we choose to arrest. Um, So it's not so much plea bargaining. It may well be that there's, there's a correlation between people who don't have resources who are poor and therefore more dependent on um, you know, they're, more, they're less likely to have the resources to stand and defend themselves. Um, and being African American, there may be a correlation with that.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And uh, so, so really, you kind of have—you can't just look at a, at at one thing like the use of a plea deal. You kind of have to look at the broader um, use of of. Um, investigations or accusations within the criminal justice system, is that correct?
1: Right, that's right, that's right. Okay. That's right.
0: So uh, you are pushing for reform, um, not only for the use of plea deal, but kind of reform for gr- criminal justice in general. What kind of reforms are you trying to push for to create a fair system um, for for our country?
1: We, uh, we incarcerate people at a rate that is shocking, and we've done so now for the past two decades higher than Russia, higher than China. Uh, Rwanda, I think, we're, you know, may be the only other country that's in front of us uh, as well. It's an extraordinary rate of incarceration for which there is no justification. Uh, it's not correlated to the crime rate. In fact, the crime rate declined uh, in places that had mandatory minimum, and that level of incarceration and the crime rate went up in other places. In other words, there's no relationship at all between these punishments. And not only is there no relationship between these punishments and the crime rate, or very little, limited relationship, um, it has decimated communities of color. Um, and, and really, as one scholar reported, sort of wiped out a generation of young African-American men in some communities. So it doesn't work, and it, in fact, harms more than it helps. I think we have to dial back on the length of sentences. I think we have to reform the drug laws. Uh, there are people who were brought into my court who shouldn't have been in federal court at all, uh, perhaps any court. Uh, so we have to we have to step back and reexamine this and change the rate of incarceration uh, and make sure that uh, the, uh, I'm looking through my sentences. For example, I found the vast majority of the people had some substance abuse problem who were arrested for drugs in particular, substance abuse problems themselves. We have to do something about that the way to deal with that is not by sending people uh to jail where they don't deal with their addictions or their substance abuse problems and they really learn next to nothing but the best the best situation is to figure out either how to you know avoid and prevent people from going to jail in the first instance so there's a there's a whole complex of things that have done we've really sort of weighed in on uh punitive uh, criminal justice system which is which is
0: bad from start to finish. Yeah, it seems like that. There's many options, but the incarceration of people seems to be the one that everybody goes to. Um, you mentioned some substance substance abuse um, prevention and, and uh, redirection. Uh, what what are some of the other ways that we can address some of these issues um, that are getting people incarcerated instead of throwing them into prison?
1: What are the other ways of dealing with it? Well, to some degree, the issues um, uh, the issues begin in, in, in our educational system. In my, the people that I sentenced, the, a very high percentage of them had been kicked out of school in the 10th or 11th grade. Mm. Uh, and what you had were kids who uh, were treated as disciplinary problems who, in fact, probably had more complex mental health, substance abuse, family problems. Uh, but it was much easier and cheaper to just kick them out. Uh, so that was that was one issue. Um, the uh, you know there are also alternative diversion programs for people who wind up in the criminal justice system that that give people jobs and get make sure they finish their education and make sure that they learn how to function in the world. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, I will talk to people who had gotten out of prison who I had sent, and they would walk into the modern world and literally not know how to set up their bank account account or their, their utility bill or you know um, literally didn't have modern skills uh, to, to, to minimally function in the world uh, and we had to address that in order to make sure that, that, that the one skill that they had they wouldn't return to which was doing this crime right so there are a lot of it, it, there's prevention before you get into the criminal justice system to AMS2, and then there are things that you also do in the criminal justice system like diversion programs Uh, And then we have to use not just jail and prison as the only alternative for someone who is um, in the criminal justice system. There are other and should be other alternatives. What's happened here is the criminal justice system is where we dump, where we deal with the failures of every other system, every other system, education, mental health, uh, and we deal with it in the criminal justice system and we deal with it badly.
0: Yeah, I think we're finding that prisons aren't the best places to get people ready to lead better lives.
1: (laughs) Not remotely. Not remotely.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, Judge Gertner, thank you so much for being on the show. And I just thank you for all the work that you're doing and wish you the best of luck uh, in all your endeavors.
1: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: Thanks. That was retired Judge Nancy Gertner from Harvard Law School. You will definitely want to check out her autobiography in Defense of Women, Memoirs of an Unrepentant Advocate. We will have a link to the book on our site. I'd like to hear from you as well. You can connect with me on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Redemptive Revolution. There are also lots of great resources at our website, redemptiverevolution.com. Check it out. And if you're a brother or sister rebuilding your life after incarceration, we would love to hear your story. You might even get profiled on the show. Until next time, my name is Nick Arnold, and this is Redemptive Revolution.